This is the Cop Think Podcast with Brian Casey and Matt Flynn is here today. Um, thanks for coming to the studio, Matt. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Um, so did you, uh, you said you didn't work today. You had your, you're off and you worked an off-duty job today? Yeah, I worked a uh, uh, half a day at uh, U.S. Bank. So And got a nap in. That's unusual. Yeah, that is unusual, uh, but it felt good. Take advantage of those days when you get them. So you work, um, your normal tour is days at uh, on East District. That's correct. St. Paul. You most of your career has been in the East, right? Yeah, say, ex- with the exception of a couple of years, it's all been on the East side. And then did, um, days mostly? Uh, the first, I think the first seven years I was, I worked midnights or tour one. And then, uh, and then I've, I've been on days for several years now, so... So those first seven years, you were really running a gun. Yeah, that was that. Yeah, I mean, the midnight shifts. I don't. It's not as busy as the afternoon shift, but it's it's the weird hours, and you kind of start out busy, and and then uh, depending on the time of day or your time of season, yeah, it's it's an interesting night work is a little different than the daytime, as you know. Sure. So I knew, I don't remember if we knew each other before I. Or had ever talked to each other before I got in the EAP job? Do you remember? I I think I remember when I was on midnights, you being on afternoons for a while. It, and, in East, yeah, yeah, okay. and uh, and I don't remember the exact years, but I, I mean, I would have remembered having some conversations with you, you know, sure. as we overlapped. Yeah, um, I remember. This is how I did get to know you a little bit. Is that when I got to my became the EAP director? About five years ago, five years ago, an officer came to me right away, within a week. He said, "We're dying out here. We need help. We got real problems with drinking." And that's something I already knew and was kind of preparing for. Um, as the EAP director, I so I thought, okay, I got to have a real plan for this. And and uh, and I remember thinking. I've got a health education degree. I've been a paramedic a long time. I've been a cop a long time. I know what uh, I know about drinking problems, you know? Yeah. But I really did it. And, uh, and I also knew that I needed someone to help me communicate with cops or get my mind right about the substance use disorders or something, you know? I always say, I don't have a, I don't have a drinking problem because I can stop any time. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> someone teased me when I said that the other day that I don't have, which I don't, I, I probably genetically don't and all that, but, and I had heard someone said, uh, Matt Flynn, he, he's a really good resource for officers. He kind of behind the scenes, meaning you're not out front in front of people a lot. You know, you'll bring guys to AA meetings. You will have coffee with guys getting out of treatment, that kind of stuff. So I remember thinking, I think Matt's, I think I could use some help from Matt. So I think, if I remember, I think we were, I was preparing to talk to the academy and I had designed this kind of little talk where we would, one, talk about police culture, mm-hmm. two, we would talk about the science of addiction and recovery, which is remarkable how many people don't, even people in recovery don't know about how the, maybe the brain gets, the reward parts of the reward centers get hijacked. And then lastly, we would talk not necessarily in that order, but we'd also talk about ha- have a cop in relatively long-term sobriety talk about his 
drinking story, so to speak, or his recovery story. So you would do that. Yeah. And then we expanded that to some other settings as well. Yeah. So that's how I remember kind of coming together. Uh, and I've learned a lot from cops and sobriety. Uh, you have too. I have, yeah. But the hard True. way, huh? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what's your story about regarding that? Well, um, you kind of want to talk to me. Do you want me to kind of start from the from the police department, or or kind of go back a little bit? How is your? Uh... I think I'm I'm going back a little bit about okay. your household. That you okay. Well, yeah, I I can talk a little bit about that. So I uh, I, I remember I remember growing up, and I remember that uh, alcohol was a regular part of our household, and I mean it was a. Um, and I, and when I say that, I mean, you know, at family functions and holidays, there was alcohol present. Um, and, and I also remember, um, my dad particularly, he was a, you know, everyday drinker. He would, he would have, uh, you know, he would have drinks at night, maybe before dinner, and then he would have drinks like a nightcap at night. Um, so alcohol was kind of always around our house. Um. And then I, I remember, uh, I remember, you know, at first it was kind of one of those things where I, I'm growing up and I'm just thinking this is just normal. This is just how everybody does it. And, and um, as I got a little bit older, you know, I started to see some of the consequences with drinking. And um, my dad had, uh, you know, he suffered from depression and PTSD. So, uh he he would get he would get very morose and very depressed and uh and and i i mean i think it was a source of some tension and some 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 verbal fighting with my parents and um you know so while i was growing up i was thinking this is normal everybody drinks like this it's normal to to drink and get intoxicated and and family events should be like this, but at the same time, watching my dad growing up, I remember thinking, uh, I remember thinking I didn't ever want to be like this. I, you know, I didn't want to be have these. And, and I, and at the time, I didn't understand that my dad's alcoholism. I mean, there was more than just alcohol. There was depression and these other mental health issues. But um, so growing up, I, I was kind of always around alcohol. And then when I was, um, I think the first time that I got intoxicated, I was. 12 or 13 uh and uh I, I went to a friend's house and and uh got intoxicated. we were on our bikes so i remember that i mean i wasn't driving i was i was young and it was some kind of a graduation party and uh my friends ended up friend's older brother ended up driving me home in his pickup truck and i'm hanging out the back of the the bed of the pickup truck and i mean i was out of commission for a day I, they brought me home to my mom and that was kind of my first uh taste of it and then but as a teenager, I was experimenting, you know, and I, and, and, uh, I knew where they kept the alcohol that wasn't hidden. And so I started, uh, I started drinking a little bit and I started sneaking it. Um, and when they were gone and it was my brother and I at home and I was in charge, you know, I would drink a little bit. And then I, I started, I knew where it was at my uncle's place, you know, I'm thinking about things that I did as a teenager, mixing it in with my Coke, you know, they had a, thing of wine, one of those box wine things in the fridge. And I remember, remember putting my can of Coke under it and 
and I hadn't thought about that in a long time, but I did weird stuff like that. Uh, so then uh, I was the guy as a junior, senior in high school that was hosting parties. And I had older friends that were getting me alcohol because I didn't have a fake ID, but they were getting, you know, liquor and beer or kegs and stuff like that. And um, I not only hosted these parties, but I would oftentimes be the uh, entertainment because I would black out and I would do crazy things. I mean, I would, I would drink and act out and, um, you know, so, and that just kind of continued through high school. And then, uh, my parents had gotten separated when I was about 15. So then it was my dad and I living alone. And so that kind of afforded me some more opportunities to misbehave because it was just dad and I, and he was kind of trying to get his life together and he was working and then having his drinks at night and trying to have a social life and trying to meet people. And I was kind of on my own a little bit. Uh, so then I went away to college and I went up to St. Cloud state, which wasn't very far, but it was just far enough for me to be out of reach of my parents. And, uh, I became, I, I, when I got to college, I pretty much, I started in that routine of being an everyday, every, or every night drinker. I mean, I was, I was going to parties and I was drinking and I was getting alcohol from people and sneaking it into the dorm. And then I was, uh, I was the guy that would say, hi, I've got a, I've got half a liter of vodka here, bring some Kool-Aid and bring some Gatorade, whatever. I'd have people come to the room and mix it. And we'd, and I mean, I was doing this not just on the weekends. I was doing this during the week. So I started to experience some consequences there with um, being drunk at night and missing a, an 8 a.m. class, maybe a 9 a.m. class, maybe a 10 a.m. class. And when I was going to those classes, I wasn't showing up uh, uh, well-prepared for, for school. I was uh, uh, possibly drunk, at the very least hungover. And at times I would have been, uh, and I certainly would have been sleep-deprived. So this kind of went on for my first year of college, and I, 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 I got close to flunking out. I mean, I got, I, I, you know, um, and then I... Uh, at the end of my first year, I wasn't prepared to say that I needed to change my drinking, but I was, I knew something had to change. So then I came up with, um, my drinking schedule, which I probably never called it that, but that's kind of what it is. It was, uh, I would drink Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, and then I would study like Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday nights. So I spent those other four nights at the library, um, and I had a part-time job at the time, so then I had to mix that in there. But then those Thursday, Friday, Saturday, if I wasn't at the job, um, I was drinking. And those were my... So then I, I was able to to clean it up enough through college to, to get through college. Uh, and I got my grades up. Kind of not sure how I did that because I was still drinking, but I, I probably was... I guess I, I had become somewhat of a functional alcoholic at that point because I... I uh, I planned it, and when I got drunk and blacked out, it was a mess, but uh, the days that I had to stay sober to, to study, I, I was able to stay sober on those days. Um, and then I, uh, so I got out of college, and then I'm, I worked a couple of security jobs that I'm trying to become a cop. 
And uh, so I had I had some trouble initially, some of the, so I did okay on some interviews, but where I was running into trouble, uh, one of the things I had trouble with was the Minneapolis, I went through the Minneapolis process years ago. That was the first process I went through. And I, I met with a psychologist and taking like the MMPI and the CPI and those, those multiple question tests. And I was trying to answer how they thought I want to answer. So of course he, the psychologist is reading these results and saying, uh, this isn't accurate. There's some deception here and whatever. Well, you know, I was trying to be that model person and I was, you know, I'm sure I was completely downplaying my alcohol use and, and maybe not being consistent. Um, but I ended up getting my first cop job and I, and, uh, I was still drinking though. I mean, I was still carrying on this pretty much. I was an everyday or every night drinker. And I, you know, I've said this before, but I would drink based on my shift. So, you know, a lot of people that work regular Monday through Friday, they might drink at night. They might drink on the weekends. And I drink based on the the schedule. And when I was a new cop, it was either afternoons or midnights. So if I got done working at seven in the morning, which is what I think my first job, that was the midnight shift. And I'd start drinking about 7.30. And I would drink hard for a few hours and black out, go to sleep, and then get up and drink a bunch of coffee and then get try and get it out of my system. You know, and I, I did this for about two and a half years. And uh, I look back at it now and I think it's kind of grace of God that I didn't that I didn't use deadly force or that I didn't run over somebody. And because I was, I was not in the right, I was not, I was not my best self. And I, and I was, uh, but, but I got through that, you know, two and a half years at, at the other police department. And then, uh, my chance came to work, um, in St. Paul. And, uh, so I went to the Academy and, uh, you know, uh, some people would think you'd lay off on the drinking and you'd say, okay, this is this 12 or 16 weeks. I'm going to, yeah, may, maybe I'll drink once on the weekend or, uh, but I, I was fully into my disease and, and I was still drinking every night. I mean, I would. Did you have anxiety about it? Like you're like, or were you like, you believe so firmly it, by now it's been like seven years where you drink on a schedule. Did you have a lot of confidence? That you well, I think I was just so used to operating like that. And uh, I, I just, and, and in part, I'm sure that I was protecting my disease and my first love, which was alcohol. And at that point, um, I, I'm not sure how conscious of a decision it was. I just, I, I guess my experience at that first police department and no one ever calling me on it. And... Uh, and to say that it I, it got worse, it may well have, but but it certainly wasn't good the first few years. Um, so there might have been a combination of things that you know allowed me to think that I could just continue on. But uh, you know, I and and I I got through the academy okay. I, I but I'm sure, and, and looking back, I think about some of the decisions I made and some of the things I did, and and. Uh, going back to like PT and uh, what we used to call defensive tactics and all the things, you know, days that you weren't feeling good and you were feeling rough. And uh, I just chalked that up to, well, I, 
I just feel like every every other cop does because everybody else drinks like me, you know. <laughs> but um, I got got through the academy and then started on FTO and uh, still drinking every night, you know, and uh, drinking again, still based on my shift. And I was on I was on days uh, in, in the second phase. And for some reason, so this, so I came into work one day, I was almost at the end of the second phase and I had stayed up particularly late for whatever reason, drinking that night before. And I don't know if I just got started late or if I just, the alcohol was that good that night. I don't know what it was, but I was, I was drinking later than usual and I hadn't done this, but I, uh, up to this point, but I overslept my alarm. I just slept right through it. You know, and I'm in training, you know, I'm, I'm a probationary employee to, to boot. So I wake up late and I call my FTO and I said, I don't know what happened. I said, I just woke up. I said, I'm going to, I'm going to quick, uh, shave shower. I'll, I'll be there just absolutely as soon as I can. And, uh, I don't remember anything specific about that morning. Probably felt like I normally did, but I drove into work walked into the team house, walked past my FTO who was sitting at the table. Uh, next thing I know, I mean, I went in the locker room for a minute or two and all of a sudden he's pulling me into a, a side room and closing the door. And, uh, then I, and then I'm in there with a couple of sergeants and, uh, and I knew, you know, I, uh, my FTO could, could smell it on me when I, probably when I walked by him and then he, I'm sure they were confirming it, getting me in that room. But, uh, that, that day, uh, that really marked the. That was a that was a that was a rough day, but it was the beginning of you know of me. That was the end of my drinking. That was the, that day was the end of my drinking. Um. And I, I remember that day. I remember sitting there thinking that. I, I remember thinking my life is over and 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 uh, all these things and. But one of the one of the thoughts, you know, people were kind to me, but I, this wasn't good, and I knew it. And I and I remember thinking, I'm getting sent home. You know, they took my gun. I'm getting a ride home, and I'm getting told, uh, you know, it's not looking good for my my job. And and I I remember I got home, and I thought there's a couple of thoughts. One thought was I still had a bottle of vodka in my dirty clothes hamper where I used to keep it because nobody looked there. One thought was to start drinking. And then another thought, and then I thought, if I do that, I'm, I, I'm really throwing in the towel because I don't know what's going to happen. And uh, I know a couple of people had told me not to drink. And, and I, you know, I, I sat there and I, I was thinking about it. And I thought, if, if I drink, I'm, I'm, I'm closing the door on anything here. And I, I don't know what's going to happen, but I, I knew that I, I, I knew that my, uh, I knew that my drinking was out of control. I, I knew that much. I knew I was powerless over alcohol. Because you had gotten caught or leading up to that? Well, I, I think I had known it for a while, but, um, but, but I had felt that my life was still manageable and I had thought, you know, and I've talked about this before, but I had a checklist and it was, is, am I, am I making it to school or am I making it to work? Am I paying my bills? Am I taking care of my house? 
Am I showing up at the family functions? Am I, am I doing what my job is as, as a son, as a police officer? And if I could check all those boxes, then I thought, well, so what if I'm hungover? So what if I feel lousy today or tomorrow or the next day? I just told myself, this is what, this is what adults do. This is, this is normal life, you know? Um, but in that moment, you were like, this is I'm powerless over this. Well, I, I, yeah. So just to go back a little bit, uh, probably about before that happened, it would have been about three years before that. I remember I, I, I had gotten to a low point and I don't remember what, what started it, but I was working at my first police department then. And, and, and I remember I, I ended up calling my mom because at that time my mom was in the program. She, she was sober and she had been sober a few years. And I remember asking her about AA and then asking her what she thought. And I was, I wanted to go to a meeting and I remember her taking me to a meeting, but uh, I wasn't ready at that time. I mean, I was ready. To, I knew something was wrong, but I wasn't ready to stop because I went to the meeting. I, I heard lots of good things. I talked to people and I don't know, maybe I stayed sober that night, but the next day I was back to drinking. So uh, the, the, the idea had been planted in my head and there were things I knew that were not good. Um, but like I said, it's what, I just kept telling myself that everybody drinks like this. And and if you manage your house, then this is the right of an adult. Just messed up thinking, you know. It's a good way to live your life. Um, so we left off at... Yeah, help me out. That, that was actually, I'd never heard that about your mom taking you to AA oh, meeting. Yeah. Years prior, that is, yeah, that's a classic situation where you're just not ready, or right. or you're not being forced to, or so. So then you, um, you get, you're like, okay, I'm an alcoholic, or I, or I, I'm powerless over this. Then you started treatment. Yeah. So, so, so the did the department? How did the department handle besides sending you home? What took place after that? Or so I, I don't remember the exact timeline, but within a day or two of being sent home, I ended up, uh, I, I think the first place I ended up was in Denny Conroy's office. And at the time, you know, he had your job in, in EAP. Uh, and I ended up, this would have been maybe the next day, maybe two days later, I can't remember, but I ended up in his office and we're talking about my situation. And more importantly, we're talking about alcohol and the behavior and he's seeing where I'm at, you know, in terms of, and I don't remember all the specifics of that discussion, but I remember a few things. I remember one thing is, I think at that point I might've been still saying I've got a problem with alcohol as opposed to the label of alcoholic. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that I was at that point yet. Um, so I remember him trying to talk to me about that and me maybe being a little resistant to want to label myself at that point. And then the other thing I remember is him kind of simplifying it for me because again, I'm going through the checklist and I'm, and I maybe didn't tell him that because I knew there was something wrong. Right. I ended up in his office for a reason. They took my gun for a reason. There's a reason that I'm, but 
at some point he talked to me, he, he was trying to make it easy. And he said, he said, if, if, if the alcoholic term, if, if, if you're, if you're having a hard time wrapping your brain around that, he said, um, maybe look at the, the, the simple question. Do, do you have consequences when you drink? And I always remember that and always will, because I've talked to people about that because the fact is people are a lot of times don't want to say I'm an alcoholic or the, but if you ask them if they have consequences from drinking and they say, yes, well, that's, everybody kind of understands that. And, uh, whether they want to ever use that label or ever, you know, get to that point, uh, everybody can kind of wrap their head around that. Well, I'll, I shouldn't say everybody, but some people do, you know. That's a straightforward way to, and, and I guess negative consequences is what we're talking about. Right. But, and, then they, and probably you've had these conversations where they'll name things and they'll downplay them. And they're really big events. Right. Or, or events that you, you can't sustain, you know, like certain things with your loved ones or... Right, and that and that's probably one of the biggest. Everybody thinks of everybody thinks of loss of employment, or they think of uh, um, being arrested for a DWI, or uh, being brought to detox, or uh, but but relationship consequences. Uh, it, it alcohol just you know can destroy families and destroy these relationships. So I mean that's to me that the loss of, of your job, the loss, you know, loss of your freedom and, and criminal charges, those things can be horrible and they can be life-changing. But um, the one thing I think that people don't always realize is how it affects, you know, relationships with, with people we love. So, right. And it's not always that you, you harm the relationship. Sometimes you harm the relationship with your absence of engagement. Like you're not fully present. So you miss out on all kinds of things, including child you know like really good things as well right. um and then the negative consequences we've talked about this too it's not always uh you know rock bottom is is actually death probably yeah uh or you get put in a nursing home um so there's farther down you can go than uh losing your job yeah true so what so then so how did how, did you go to treatment just once and successfully? And how well, how did you navigate that whole? Thing? Yeah. So, uh, I, yep. So I I ended up being in, sitting with Denny Conroy, and and I remember him telling me, uh, "You're gonna, you know, I was gonna meet with the chief within a day or two, and and uh, and then I I don't I think I met with Denny twice, two days, maybe after meeting with the chief, because I think I met with the chief, and then I found out that the chief was gonna give me another chance." provided I do certain things. And one of those was go to an inpatient treatment program. And I think probably the day later, I'm back in Denny's office. And, uh, and he said, uh, he said, uh, you need to go to inpatient treatment. And he goes, uh, uh, and I don't remember if I got in that day or the next, but he said, they're going to have a bed for you at Twin Town uh, in St. Paul. And, and that's where you need to go. So, yep. So I ended up you know, within a couple of days, I was over there and, and I forget if it was a 28 day or 30 day, but it was, I, I spent roughly that amount of days, um, in inpatient and, 
and then did an aftercare program and then still go to, to AA. And, but, I, but I've only been to treatment the one time. So why was treatment successful for you? Well, I, I, I think in part because I was people get to to get to this point in their life for different reasons, and some are some are the right reasons, some aren't. I I was faced with the loss of a job, and so that's what brought everything to a head. Um, but once I got into treatment, once I got sober, once I realized what my path, what my best path was. I stayed sober because because I, I I stayed with it because I wanted to and I wanted to be healthy and I and I um so I think for me you know even when I first got to treatment my head was pretty foggy but but I think I was just I was ready and I had a pretty severe consequence and so if not for that consequence uh, I'll be honest, I don't know how many more years or how many more months or days it would have taken me to get there. And it might have been, it might have been that horrific event where I could, could have killed someone or run over someone or who knows. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, there was a part of me that knew that my drinking wasn't good. And, and I knew that, and, and so that, I think that just brought everything to the front. And I guess I was... <clears throat> I was open-minded enough when I got to treatment. I think the other thing that might have helped is uh, when I went in there, I, I I was in there with all kinds of different people. Um, some folks that have been lived on the street, uh, which I, I've never had that experience. Some people that <clears throat> grew up in all kinds of different homes, different kinds of drugs of choice, um, crack, uh, methamphetamine, uh, you know, pr- probably several others and alcohol. Um, but I think I was just, I was open to, to listening and trying to learn about myself. Again, I was pretty foggy in treatment, but I, I think at that point I had resigned myself that something needed to be different, you know? So I was willing to, I was willing to open my, my mind and listen. Well, you said you were foggy in treatment, which is good for people to hear because treatment, inpatient treatment, is mostly is basically stabilization. Yeah. It's not just the beginning, and that's why I know that in law enforcement, I don't think we do a very good job with aftercare. We're like super excited if we can get people into treatment, right? Basically, good luck with that. So you mentioned the aftercare. The reason I ask is this is a remarkable story, and I'll tell you because you went to Twin Town. Now most people don't know what that means. That's that is not Hazleton. Oh, no. <laughs> and that's right on University Avenue, and it's uh, a rough spot. And I'm sure you drove by there as a patrol officer. Oh, yeah. uh, I sure have. So it, to me, it also means potentially, tell me if I'm wrong, if you go in wanting it bad enough, it may not matter whether it's Hazleton or Twin Town or other. And I know there's co-occurring problems. And there's other issues that need to be dealt with, but you sounded like you were really ready. And I'll just add one more thing. Um, sometimes cops begrudge the fact that they can lose their gun and their badge. That's probably life-saving for cops. I mean, pilots are the same way. They fear they're going to lose their wings. So they're highly motivated. And I think some of the general public, I don't know if they have that 
that threat, so to speak. You know, and you right. said it yourself. You're like, okay, I got a second chance here. But anyway, it's remarkable when I think about Twin Town. I mean, yeah. I still think about it. I mean, that's, yeah. that's almost like some bragging rights there. Yeah. I, well, I just remember, I remember Denny Conroy saying, uh, <clears throat> I remember he's saying, well, we're good. I think we have a bed for you. And he's talking about it. And I, in the back of my head, I don't remember if I said it or not, but I'm thinking Hazelden. I'm thinking, uh, I've had, I've had several relatives, uh, that went to Hazelden over the years and I'd visited there as a kid, you know, maybe as an adult too, but never for treatment. But, and I'm thinking, boy, that's, that's going to be kind of like a country club. Well, and then he says, go to university in Aldine, Twin Town. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm thinking that's in the city. And, uh, even though I'm a new cop, I'm going to probably be in there with a bunch of folks that I possibly have dealt with, uh, and, or are going to encounter in my, uh, yeah, so it was a little bit of a shock when I heard that. Well, and you, uh, that's true. Um, the, uh, you had mentioned, um, uh, something earlier about it being your first love. Mm. I think the first time I heard that phrase, were you, it's evident to me, because I've heard your story a couple of times, how much you planned your day around your drinking. Just did a mental calculation. And, uh, and even you started that in college when you started going, okay, I got to have a library schedule on that. So you got really good at planning that. Um, and you plan. So I think that's what's an interesting. Is that a relief when you get sober? Is that you don't have to plan your day around drinking all the time, or is are there oh. you have other worries? I suppose. Well, I mean, the the weird thing about it now is I try to think, I think of all the things that I try to get done in a day and how busy some days are, and I try to figure out how I had time to drink, to sit and drink, um, for a few hours to several hours, most days, uh, because. Now uh, I can have several hours, and I'm I'm uh, stone cold sober, and I'm having some trouble getting these things done, and I'm having and and I'm finding that there's not enough time in the day, so uh, yeah, it, it is weird because you you just you don't realize how how much how much time you actually spend drinking. It's kind of crazy, and I. I guess I did a lot of things simultaneously with drinking and probably in the early part of my drinking or in the early hours of my drinking before I got, you know, where I could, where I could do some of these things. Maybe not very well, but. Yeah. You've, you've told me, um, or I've heard you say before, um, I kind of appreciate it, is that you're like, to you, alcohol is evil. I mean, you have this, I've, heard, I've seen other men that we know that are in sobriety that have shared their story. One thing that's impressive is a little bit of distrust they maintain of their own sobriety in a sense that they don't, they don't overstate it. They don't brag about it. They're really humble, get humble very quick about it um, because they know it's right there, so to speak. I don't know if that's the way to say it. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting because when you're, saying that there's a couple of things that have come to my mind and and one of them is something that uh that todd always says and he says alcohol is cunning ba uh, cunning baffling and powerful and that's right in the how it works that's right in the thing we read at each a meeting 
But then he he always says cunning, baffling, powerful, and patient. Mm-hmm. And so that rings in my head because that wasn't something that I ever thought about with it. But uh, but but it is because when I think when I think about what it, what my drinking was like, it was it, you you could be having the best day and I'm getting drunk. I could be having the worst day and I'm, I'm getting drunk. It really didn't matter. And it could be a small thing that could trigger it. Uh, you know, it's, it, I remember thinking it was, well, I, I think I operated like this a lot, but, uh, but, but it was interesting that you could, it was kind of a crutch and you'd say, Oh boy, I really need that extra drink. And in my case, it wasn't an extra drink or two. It was an extra five or 10. I mean, it was just, but, but I, one of the things I know is that, uh, while I don't have a desire to drink today and I, and I, and you may want to cut this out, but look, I, and I've said this before in meetings and I've said it is I don't have a desire to drink today, but I I desire to, I have a desire to be an asshole a lot of times. And so for me, I, I have to just kind of, um, I have to remember that that not only am I am I going to AA now and doing these things to to be a better person and to live better, but I but I also am doing it to remind myself of where that first drink goes because I'm I'm trying to guard against that first drink. If I have a drink, then my fear is I will go back to maybe in a week, maybe in a month, but I, I will get back to where I was quickly. So I have to guard against that and I have to use the tools and the the things I've learned in AA, you know, and, and in meeting all these other people and in treatment to 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 kind of be vigilant. I love that line that you said, what you just said about um, why you do AA, because you yeah. still need it for other life things right. and all those other connections. Also, our, our friend Eric has talked like that, like just shocking how quickly it all comes. It all falls down again if they take that next drink again. Right. How quickly they return to where they were, you know, when it wasn't working. So why do you? So tell us. So you go to AA is still a big part of your life. It is yes. Uh, and you go to a meeting that's, I forget the term. It's open. It's open, right? Meaning. Uh, yeah, it's not an all cop meeting, right? No, it, and it, I'm trying to remember if it's. So open or closed, I think some of those meetings closed might mean that you have to be in the program and open might be for anybody, but it's, it's not just for cops. It's a, and it's mostly men, but it's not a men's meeting. It's, it's a, a step meeting, which means that uh, we show up and we talk about one of the 12 steps and uh, you know, it's kind of a small core group that always shows up, but it was, it was started and it might have been in the 70s, certainly the 80s, by some St. Paul cops that kind of started this group that, that got sober early. And and they used to call it cops and robbers. That was their effect because they it was mostly cops, but they would have people that would come in from time to time that were kind of on the other end of the spectrum. And they welcomed them, but but it was by by and large mostly mostly cops then. And, and, and that meeting now has turned into it's, there's a core group that goes there, but there's you know, there's a few of us that are in law enforcement and a couple of retired guys, but not, not like it was even when I first started you're talking about 18 years ago, it was, 
a whole bunch of retired guys and some active guys that, uh, you know, in that meeting. So the, um, so what is, um, I have a couple questions for you. One is when you were thought you were hiding it well, do you remember people or even when you started your recovery or the jig was up, did any supervisor or officers say things to you that were really helpful? Like that maybe even part of your recovery or actually enabled it massively or whatever. As far as enabled my recovery to, I guess I was thinking it enabled you to continue well, to drink or to and, continue to drink. Uh, you know what? I, I, I don't remember anything real huge. I, there's a, when I, right after I got sober, uh, I remember coming back to work, you know, I was out, I had that inpatient treatment 30 days and I, and I was, I was on, I got a 30 day, um, I, I can't think of the word I got, uh, Suspension? suspension. Yeah. yeah. I was okay. going to think of suspension. So I was out for, you know, it ended up being about six weeks, I suppose, because it's work days, whatever. And I remember, um, most people were, were, were very supportive. And, uh, but I remember having a couple of guys that were pretty senior guys that when I came back and I had only been back, you know, a month or two, they're telling me, they're saying, ah, you, you did what you had to do for the chief. Come on, don't have a drink with us. You'll be back. You'll be fine. You just, you just drank too much that night. And I, I, uh, I don't even know. I mean, these were pretty senior guys and I was a pretty new cop and I don't even know that I even really said much, but I internally, I knew internally, I knew that, that, uh, by that point that I, I wasn't going to be able to go out and have a drink or two. And I knew that if I did that, I was, I was going to go back right down a spiral to where I came from. So, you know, uh, it didn't make th those those comments didn't didn't make it. I mean, they they weren't terribly helpful, but I think I took them in the context that they were. And 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 some of these are 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 guys that um, you know they may have had their own issues with alcohol. I don't know, but but then there were also cops that kind of mostly privately, I would say. But I had a handful of cops, and and a couple of them were bosses that came up to me and told me that they thought they were proud of me for doing what I did. And they were maybe more proud that I came back because I think some of them just figured I was going to wash and that, you know, the chief gave you a second chance. You came back, you got sober and, and you're doing the things you got to do. So there, there was good support. I would say by and large, did you have, uh, were you a prideful person? Did you have trouble coming back and starting over or what? I suppose you had to go back into FDO. I did. I went back and I started over at phase one. Um, and I, oh I, wow, you started phasing. Yeah, well, initially and you were already an experienced cop too, right? I had been, I had, I had been in a smaller department, so it wasn't quite the same. But I had had some prior law enforcement, and uh, initially they said, "Oh, you're going to come back and start over where you left off." But then when I came back, they said, "We're going to run you through the whole FTO." And at that point, uh, I was just so grateful to be back that they could have told me I was going to redo the academy, and I would have. I, I, I would have done it maybe begrudgingly a little bit, but I would have done it. So. I think the, I, um, something that I was inspired by what Eric has talked about is how much anxiety he had about coming back to work yeah. and how it turned out, which is now obvious when you think about it, they get a better cop back. Yeah. And then, uh, 
sometimes the cops feel some uh, increased sense of loyalty to their department because they're like, uh, this was a close one. And, um, but I do know that cops have some significant anxiety about returning to work. And so when I think about returning to work, I think, okay, now you successfully complete treatment. There's all that aftercare. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we do a good job of making demands regarding aftercare or whatever. We're kind of like, good luck with that. Um, and then there's also re, re-socialize or re-getting in with the department. You have done something that's really a benefit to me because I get calls from treatment facilities once in a while that we have a cop here from wherever, not even necessarily our own department, and he or she is worried about going back to work and probably worried about staying sober, you know, which is funny because it's just like drug addicts that go back into their old neighborhood. Yeah. All those triggers. Mm-hmm. And... um I say, well, we don't really have, in, our, in the metro area, we don't have a really robust support system. We have some very good things, but not as good as maybe we'd like to get someday. So I say, I'm just call me. And I'll get them set up. And there's a couple of cops, you, Eric, and others. Yeah. They'll meet with these people and get them to their first AA meeting, which it's, I don't know what to say, but how to describe it, but it's sweet isn't the right word, but. It's got to be scary going to that first AA meeting, maybe. I don't know. Just a bunch of strangers, and yeah. this is your new life. And right. And to have someone bring you there or meet you there, yeah. a friendly face to greet you, super powerful, I would think. I, I think it makes a big difference. I I know that, and you mentioned anxiety, and I didn't really say, so I remember coming back and having some anxiety, and I remember having some anxiety about how what people would think of me, you know, peers, and uh supervisors and whatever and i uh and then i remember but but i guess that was quickly that that didn't last a long time because people were pretty welcoming but then when i think about you know and i think about going to that first meeting when i first started going to that highland meeting i remember i just went in there and i i didn't i don't think i said a word i might have said i might have said i'm matt i might have said i'm an alcoholic but i just listened I, i had nothing to offer and i was just kind of listening. But the fact is when I went into those meetings, there was a couple of retired cops. One was the St. Paul cop retired. One was a Ramsey County Sheriff. And both those guys took me under their wing and they made me feel welcome. And they, you know, that really took a, that really eased me quite a bit going in there. And I, the one thing that cops say to me when I bring them to a meeting, especially cops that have never been to a meeting is one of the first things they always say is, uh, I don't want to go to a meeting where, uh, people that are not law enforcement and, and maybe I'm going to run into somebody I've dealt with and I'm not comfortable about non, non-law enforcement. And I'm sure I probably thought that way too. Um, but the fact is now, you know, it's time I, I go to, I go to other meetings and there might be some cops in there, but it's the general public. And, you know, so I get why cops want to go to a meeting where there's cops. I get that. And and I'm glad we have, you know, some meet couple of meetings where there's a few cops that helps. But truth is, if you got folks in a, in AA that want to be sober and want to live better, you know, I think cop, I think it, we all, we go there and then we realize, wait a minute, these people all have the same, there's, there's a common thing running through us and we all want the same thing. We want to, we want to be a better person. We want to live a better life and we want to be sober doing it. I, and I, I, I totally get it as well. And it's, 
cops that I'm getting into re, uh, treatment. That's an issue that we talk yeah. about and all that. Um, um, but at the same time, I, it makes sense to me that you would, it, I understand the fear and anxiety yep. and there's officer safety and that kind sure. of stuff. But that, that could be also part of the scam too, right? All the reasons that, all the people that shouldn't know, all the reasons that you can't go. Right. I mean, you can add that, that list can grow pretty quick. Right. And uh, a real desperate guy ready to get recovery will be go, I'll go to Twin Town. I don't give a damn, you know? Right. Uh, so the, um, let's see, what else? Um, so did you know I wrote a book? Did you know that? I don't, I, I, it's right over there. I wonder if you told me and I just haven't seen it. So I have a whole, oh. I have a whole chapter on alcohol. Um, and that's actually a pretty thick chapter because I talk about the science of addiction and the police culture. Actually, the whole science of addiction and recovery, it's fascinating. And actually, it's remarkable how many cops, even those in recovery, don't know. I'll just say how the reward system works and how it gets, you know, hijacked, so to speak. Yeah. But one of the big portions of the alcohol chapter, I spend a lot of time talking about supervision. And um, and where and, and how to guide supervisors with this situation because you know very well we have you have cops that know other cops are not living sober in a, in a destructive way and they're thinking right. is the supervisor pretending he doesn't know is he afraid and I'm not saying it's easy to confront these deals but right. uh, do you have any thoughts about and I I, I don't want to put it all in the supervisor because it's good to have a a whole organization that has systematic processes and expectations and policies and all that stuff. But what do you think, what do you think we're not doing well as far as agencies regarding, the, regarding this issue? Well, you know, I, I don't know how much training is out there and how much, I mean, we, we do, you know, we, we do our training, we do our, uh, our driving training, which is important, EVOC. And, and we shoot so many times a year, and then you have legal updates, you have policy changes, and look, all important stuff to our job. Um, and, and as time goes on, mental health is becoming such a, a, a big issue, and, and we've got the crisis intervention, and now we've got, um, you know, we've got CI, people trained in CIT, and everybody's... And, and, and maybe one of the things, you know, it, it's hard to know because if you... If you know someone that's struggling and you're their peer or their friend and their coworker, you know, on the one hand, you get people that are really, they really want to do the, the right thing and they're concerned and you, and you hope that that person's going to take their friend aside and say, I'm seeing things that are concerning me and, 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 you know, talk to them and, or maybe not, not that they're the person qualified to talk to them, but help steer them, you know, or if they're doing something that's dangerous at work, if they think they're coming into work impaired um, and they're letting them hop in that squad car and go take calls, that's concerning. And I'm not saying it's on that, the friend to, but I guess, you know, if, if we care about each other and we want to take care of other cops, then we don't want cops. Well, look, we know there might be, there might be some destructive behavior. Uh, we know that it can, it's, it's going to affect them, uh, the department. It can affect the citizens. So, you know, as far as supervisors go, I don't know if that's something that, 
that there's there's training or there's classes and there's you know I I, I don't really know except that there's got to be there's got to be some tools and some ways to kind of approach that um because it's one thing to know somebody's going through a little bit of a rough time and you reach out to them a little bit and they kind of say, I'm fine. And they're not, but, and maybe you're not seeing a whole lot of negative performance at work, but if it starts to get to the point where it, you know, it becomes a danger, then you hope that people are going to say, yep, this, you know, something has to happen here. And they don't, you, you hate to have, you don't want that supervisor to be on an Island and not be able to fall back and say, uh, well, look, this employee's doing this. I'm concerned about the, that person. I'm concerned about the cops that work with him. I'm concerned about the department as a whole. I'm concerned about the citizens that this person's encountering. Um, you know, and I just don't know enough about what, what is available because sometimes you think some of it's kind of common sense, but it isn't all common sense. And no, I, I think I, th- I think that's it isn't common sense. And also there's a um, it, it's actually very difficult. Right. And um, and and sometimes I think supervisors do the wrong thing or don't do enough because they not because they don't care. It's because they don't know what to do. And it's right. a hard thing. Right. And then sometimes they do the wrong thing, like give these come to Jesus speeches that, you know, they come down hard on them, take them aside, say, if I ever catch you coming to work this way or that, it'll be the last time. And, and then I think sometimes in that moment, the cop receiving that's like, you're right, I won't do it again. Yeah. I'm a piece of crap. And then within 10 minutes, the disease is in charge again. And they're, you know, it's not that they lied to the supervisor, it's just that something, something else took over. Right. The, um, um, I think... Um, I think it's hard for supervisors. I, one thing I was going to mention, that's one of the reasons in that alcohol chapter, I have a whole section to guide supervisors because I've given a lot of thought to this. Because I know that sometimes cops that aren't doing well are moved or transferred, and then there are another new supervisors, basically, oh boy, how am I going to manage this situation? And I really, and I, I go to great length to talk about, you have to prepare yourself. You have to armor yourself because you will be manipulated. You are not their first love. And, um, right. and you have to kind of get your own mind right so that you can deal with it effectively, including keeping from supervisor shopping and, and doing ends around, end arounds. Do you, also, I was thinking about the word confront isn't necessarily the right word because it doesn't have to be a supervisor. It can be a coworker right. uh, or a senior officer or a friend. Sometimes we have this image that if we have a talk with another person, that they're going to blow us, blow us away. You know, they're going to blow us up. Yeah. That's, that's not always the case. I mean, I think one thing I liked, whether it's officer suicide prevention or even issues like this, is most of us are capable of having an authentic talk with someone else. Yeah. You know, if we humble ourselves, try to stay fact-based, really get clear in our mind what our motivation is, even expressing our fears to this person, you know, it can be a really good start. And some people are going to go, get away from me, make counter accusations, where at the same time others are going to go, I think, because I've experienced it, they're going to go, I know, I'm struggling here. Yeah. You know, or maybe at a later time they, they come to that understanding. So Right. 
Um, what else? What else do you did you think we might talk about that that we didn't, or you think it's important to hear around this topic? Oh, I think for a minute here. Hmm. Well, I I just wanted to add on what you were talking about with the the supervisors and cops talking to each other. I I I think it's uh, I think it's it's it is hard for cops and, I, and I'm not a supervisor, so I don't know how difficult that is, but I think we do worry about um, cops getting defensive and, and uh, like you said, counter uh, accusation, things can happen. But, but there's something you said that, that is so important and makes sense is if you do it from somewhat of a humble point of view and it's not accusatory and it's not, it's not a finger in your face. I think, I think we have an obligation to try. So I think that's, that's good. Um, you know, I, I, I really enjoy helping cops and I really enjoy bringing cops to meetings and, and kind of showing them some of the things, you know, just sharing with them my experience because I'm not, you know, I'm not, uh, I, I make plenty of mistakes and there's days where I, you know, I, say things or do things, you know, I have my days. Um, but, uh, but this, but AA, you know, the, this program and being sober, it, it's really saved me, you know, it's really, really made my life better and it'll never be perfect, but I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm just trying to get a little bit better each day. And I, you know, I, I, I just want to give you a lot of credit and kudos for, all the work you've done with trying to learn about this alcohol piece, because I, I think it's tough. I think it's tough to get your head around it. And, um, and I, you know, I think I understand a fair amount, but, but because I'm in it, because I'm an alcoholic in recovery. Um, and, and, you know, and it was in my family. So, but, uh, I just, well, I'm committed to it from this point of view. I feel like it's, um, so I'm the EAP director. So there's some big boy pants you got to wear with that. Mm -hmm. And um, my thought about alcohol, I'm not stupid. I know that this is a real big issue. And it's a disease, it's a, a disease that go goes from mild to moderate to severe. It's a progressive disease. And, um, and for every cop uh, that pushes back and... Uh, in, in a variety of ways that they do that, some are pretty aggressive. There's probably cops going, what took us so long to talk about this? Right. And, and so, um, and, and alcohol problems, I, I forget the number, I have it in the book, but a lot of our, a lot of cops drink alcohol just to sleep, get to sleep. Yep. Uh, and a lot of cops develop certain habits that really feed into that reward system. And, um, and it's, um, it's not going to work out long-term for them. And, um, and probably maybe like you, when they finally get in recovery, they only wish they had been able to do it earlier. Right. But it's a lot of work, I'm sure. Um, but what's the alternative? I'm, I'm not sure. I don't see any other good alternative. No, I, I I, I think that, you know, 
in years past, obviously alcohol was, it's, it's been the way to decompress and it's been the way, okay, I'm going to go drinking with these new cops or these cops. And I trust these guys cause I can go drinking with them and we can yeah. do stuff. Right. And that's that. And, and, and there still is some of that. Um, but I think it's becoming a little bit less. And I think we're getting to the point where cops are just in general with mental health and everything, cops are getting a little bit better and a little bit easier to talk about it. And I, I but I, I think the only way that we, that it continues to get better and that we continue to have the discussions is by reaching out to people and by learning about it because, um, you know, there's all these things that you put on a shelf and I don't want to talk about that because it's embarrassing or that's personal or it's whatever. And the fact is, is that this alcohol uh, alcoholism, it, it destroys lives and it destroys families and it, and it's, and it kills people. I mean, it, and it ruins, you know, and, and, and talking about it is okay. And when, and people drink for a reason, I, yeah. I, I tell cops that you, people drink for a reason. So it's, it's okay to have reasons to drink, to try to manage really difficult things. It's just that there's other consequences that are devastating. So we have to find some other ways around that, right. you know? And, um, and another thing that I think really helps cops is that is if they understand the science of addiction a little bit, they realize it's more than willpower right. to overcome this disease. Because some guys have six, tried and failed, tried and failed, yeah. tried and failed, and they, they go down to this path of self-loathing. And that's where you'd need professional help right. in whatever form that takes. Um, something else you had mentioned about drinking and drinking buddies. I had talked about it in the book. It was a Minneapolis cop that told me, you know, just how those weren't real buddies when, when, when things started to fall about right apart for him, you know, and that's what I kind of like about the world of people in recovery. It's, it's almost, I mean, I'm not in recovery, but I spend time with people in recovery. It's almost like they get a twinkle in the eyes when they see each other. Yeah. They have a knowing that goes, goes between them. Something else I was going to mention that I think is an uh, interesting thought is in a discovery I made. A lot of people might think, oh, older cops that have seen it all and grizzled and from that older generation, they're the, drink, they're the ones that are having drinking problems. And, and you and I know it's the new cops as well. I mean, cops right. coming into the department, cops being let go during the academy. Yeah. I mean, it's a big deal. So here's one thing I want to end with is that, um, and this is what Eric reminds me. Wants me. Eric is our Minneapolis friend and that we consult with and work with, and is just to remind cops of the success stories. Yeah, that there are people like you telling your story, and you you tell your story in a way that's really easy for me to hear and listen to, uh, and um, but you don't overstate it. You don't make it sound like it's not a daily issue for you or whatever. But you still get to raise your, you still get to raise your daughters, you know. Yeah. So you're you're in a grand place. Oh yeah. Um, and Eric's another example, and numerous other cops is that cops need to know that cops get better tremendously better, and um, basically get decision making back again. Um, and and we're in a good spot because we have at least at our agency a lot of really good resources and options for them. Yeah. So it's a really good thing to remind people of the real. The success, the successful recovery stories. Oh, I agree. They're numerous. Yeah. Um, do you guys have any questions or anything that you think we should? No, I think we can go. All right, great, Matt. Thanks so much.
uh, for coming. Um, there's other topics around this issue that maybe we'll have another time chance to talk about. Um, this is part of the Good Cop or the Cop Think podcast. Uh, why the police do what they do. Yeah. And I think it's important for uh, us to admire and try to understand cops before we try to change them. Uh, because some of the things they do, it's because they're trying to manage a hard thing. Right. And uh, that's what we try to do with this, in this podcast is understand cops a little better. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me. That This was, I uh, enjoyed it. Great. Thank you, much. thank you. All right. I'll see you out there. All right. Sounds good, Brian. Bye. Bye.